Welcome to Results May Vary, a podcast to help you design your life. Chris and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesigned the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the world's most creative minds in science by turning their genes into music at TED. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took the same creative problem-solving process we used to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. Results May Vary! In this episode, we introduce you to Kristen Berman. Kristen studies how people actually act in the marketplace, as opposed to how they should or would perform if we were completely rational. In 2013, she co-founded Irrational Labs, a behavioral product design company with famed author Dan O'Reilly. She also co-founded Common Sense Lab, a Duke University initiative dedicated to improving the financial well-being for low to middle-class Americans. And on today's show, she talks to Results May Vary about experiments and strategies she's used in her own life and how to use behavioral economics to experiment in your own. Great. Well, why don't, why don't we start with a little bit about you? We're, we're excited to talk to you today. But uh, would you mind telling us the, the Kristen story and, and how you arrived to where you are and maybe a little of what you're what you're known for yeah the Kristen story um so currently i think about human behavior and i do that i'll start with what i currently do and then we'll, we'll get to how that happened um and i work with um i'm biased of course but i think one of the best behavioral economists out there today dan Ariely, who's um at duke and um, we think about how to get people to do things that are hard for them um that they want to do in the long run in the long term but that are hard in the short so things like eating better, where um, you really know that you should be um, being healthy, and yet you have the muffin that's in front of you. Things like saving money, where you know that your retirement definitely will come, and yet um, spending on, on things in our world is just so easy, sometimes fun. Um, so I think about these general problems uh, and do it from a way of like applying uh, technology. So basically saying, you know, we have these problems in our world, and one way you could change behaviors to write academic papers and hope that people read them. <laughs> and uh, other ways you could think about policy and the points of leverage um, that I start with is how would you get a company or develop a product or a service that could basically change the environment such that people then change their behavior. So uh -huh. The reason I started with that, or, and that's kind of the current hypothesis on uh, the biggest point of leverage to change behavior is I, uh, I came from the product world. So I was a product manager at Intuit um, right after school um, and basically spent time, uh, you know, doing the customer research and thinking about new features and all that stuff you do as a product manager and realized that most people were just shooting from the hip, <laughs> that you as a product manager, mm -hmm. um, designer or, um, you know, anyone kind of in charge of, of coming up with the vision or the product features um, you know, it's just really a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of trusting our intuition and there is no, um, great way to make decisions. And, um, that was the first time I heard Danny Riley speak and I was like, Oh my gosh, 
there is science behind this stuff. We can, uh, you know, we can rely on, on something in order to make decisions and we don't have to continue to rely on our intuition. Um, which was amazing, right? It was, it's basically saying there, the science of human behavior is being studied. Um, there's a lot of people studying it in the world. Uh, and as a designer and product manager, it, it now it like felt like our responsibility, right, to read uh, and, and bathe in the insights that are coming from academia around what people do. Because as the whole hypothesis around behavioral economics is that uh, if you, the environment basically influences our decisions, right? So in a perfect, in a ideal world, in an economic world, you'd say people are rational and make cost and benefit type decisions. They weigh the pros and cons of everything. And they have very clearly defined preferences based on very um, logical things. And the behavioral economics and psychology, social science world says that's usually not true. Um, and instead we have very ill-defined preferences and we're influenced by our environment. And so if you believe that, then the people who are like creating forms and designs and all of these things that are creating our environment are some of the most powerful people out there, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you, mm -hmm. so it's their responsibility almost to understand how the brain works and how we behave and why we do the things we do. Um, great, great. Yeah. yeah, so just just jumping right in then, I'm sure people listening to our show will, will want us to go right to it and just say when someone on the street or a friend or a dinner party conversation turns to Kristen, how do I change my behavior? What do you, what do you respond with? And they just say, like, I'm just really struggling, whether it's food or finance, how do you respond to the, I'm sure a common generic question is how could you help me change my behavior? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it, I, I wish there was just like one answer where I could be like, well, if you close your eyes and jump up and down three times, Mm -hmm. This is how it will happen. Mm -hmm. uh, That's what Tracy and I say most of the time. I yeah. I try that every day. It still hasn't worked. Yet. I've been trying four times, and I think I'm getting a better response. <laughs> it's five. It's on the fifth. That it okay, uh, it. good to know. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all really context dependent, right? So, so basically, there's no one right answer for um, for all problems. So, for instance, if you were to say, um, you know, some Tracy, you want to eat better tomorrow and you want to make sure that you do that. How, what is the best strategy for you? Um, we would go into your kitchen and try to design things that would make it harder for you to take junk food and easier for you to take healthy food, right? But the reality is how your kitchen is different than somebody else's kitchen. So there may be different interventions for you that would work, um, that may not work for other people because of the way that the kitchen's designed. And so you think about the answer to that question, and it's really asking people to think about how they mess with, hack their environment that they're living in, um, in order to encourage the behavior that they want. So it's really not about uh, thinking about and educating yourself about all the great ways to eat healthy or save money. Um, you know, the answer really comes in understanding the environment and how it kind of makes it really easy for you to mess up in your goals and how you can hack the environment to make it much easier for you to succeed. I think that um, that's a really powerful point. And our, our thinking about how you apply design to your life is that you can then move from that step and design it for yourself. And so often people want an answer that is universal for everybody, or they want the, the silver bullet. All clients want a silver bullet. All people want a silver bullet. And, and design thinking is powerful in the fact that then you 
have some process or steps to take that can allow you to know if you're making good decisions or not as you're hacking your your environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask Kristen if you would could you share. Um, often people can really relate through story. Are there? Could you share a story of of someone you know who has successfully applied some of these skills and, and maybe through an individual example? Um, the theory we're all in. I'm just wondering if you could share an individual example. Yeah. So um, the current person that I'm uh, seeing did this to me. He basically flipped the paradigm and he, um, he really, um, we've talked about the benefits of LASIK for a while. And um, I wasn't doing anything about making an appointment or actually following through on my desire to get LASIK. Um, So I was putting it off. The procrastination bug had gotten me. Um, So what he did was uh, email, without me knowing, email all of my friends, not all of them, but let's say 15. It was about 15 that that actually participated. And said, uh, help Kristen get LASIK. Give her, donate some money. And if she doesn't get it within, and there were different time periods, so it was within two months, three months and six months, then she can't actually get your money. So (laughs) people put in $15 to $100. And uh, if I didn't get it within, you know, two months, then I would lose a portion of the money. If I didn't get it within three months, I would lose a portion of the money. Um, Not only that, he had them send pictures of them shaming me as then what they would do, trying to get me to envision what they would do and how they would look at me if I actually failed to meet this goal. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, and, and what this is, is basically a commitment contract, right? So it basically says it's really difficult for, um, you know, I'm going to wake up in the morning and prioritize making a LASIK appointment. Instead, now I have a reason to do it today, right? Um, before, it was like there was never a good day to make a LASIK appointment. <laughs> and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. now it's a good day to make a LASIK appointment. And I actually got it within three weeks. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's very simple to get it. All you have to do is call and make the appointment to go get screened, right? But the procrastinating, the procrastination was what was difficult. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think these types of things where you can get somebody else involved in your goals mm-hmm. um, is extremely helpful. And, you know, what he did was get other more people involved. <laughs> right. And, uh, and make it not only use social pressure, but accountability and commitment contracts um, to kind of push me into doing something that I otherwise would have put off but still wanted to do. Yeah, I wondered in that if it was like the loss aversion, the financial um, loss of the money that was saved up for you, or if it was more the shame, or was it the powerful combination of the two? What do you think was so successful as it pertains to you? Yeah, I think... uh, I think for me, the um, the idea of involving other people made it a made the accountability really high that I didn't want to um, not follow through and look bad in front of my friends, um, right? But but the reality is he just applied a lot of these principles, and we don't really know which one actually worked. So so I can post rationalize that I think it was something, but. Um, but that's a lot. A lot of why we like love controlled experiments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because then we actually know what worked in some of this stuff. So if that was a controlled experiment, and we said let's, you know, there would be three different ways that we would try to convince Kristen to get LASIK. 
Um, then we'd figure out if it was social norms or loss aversion or how many people or the t- types of people that were included. Um, but we're, we're pretty bad at the post-rationalization of why we think we did something. So yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, and it seems like in our conversations before this that you like to experiment in your life uh, very often. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about some of the other life experiments that you're doing right now. Sure. Um, so actually I think a nice place to start is, um, parties that I used to throw. Um, and then we can kind of get into how that's evolved, but I, um, I used to, and I haven't done it for a while, but used to gather folks and basically, um, give them rules. And if the people didn't want to come to my parties and, and follow the rules, then they didn't have to come. Um, and let me give you an example of some of the rules. Um, it was what people could talk about was a majority, and then when they could show up and when they left. Hmm. So the what they could talk about, basically what happens in normal house party um, gatherings is that you talk about, uh, you have a long conversation of small talk. (laughs) It's around the weather, it's sports, it's your commute, it's your latest vacation. Um, Now the question is, do people really want to talk about small talk? Mm-hmm. And likely the answer is no, but it is the easiest thing to talk about. And if you were just to go up to somebody and ask them, what's your deepest fear? This is actually puts you in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. And so because you don't know if they want to actually talk about this and that's not the norm. And so what do we do is we go to the lowest common denominator and we talk about small talk things that nobody actually really wants to talk about. And yet we all do. So one way to overcome that is to have social coordination and say, actually, for this, nobody can talk about small talk. It all has to be questions that are um, not big talk, but more interesting. So things around what's your feeling on the political campaign? How do you, um, what is your deepest fear? What are you thinking about right now? Um, When's the last time that you cried? Um, Things that you just don't have press play moments for. And what what I mean by press play moment is something that you're very used to talking about. Um, And so you don't really have to, to think about it. Um, and that means you're not being vulnerable and you're not, you may not be getting to know the other person. Mm-hmm. And so having these rules of the party basically prevents the tragedy of the commons of conversation. And you can't really have, um, you, it's not like I could just go into the party and say, I'm going to talk about this without the social coordination of other people. And so what's needed in those situations is somebody else to come in and kind of make a paternalistic rule about, about how people will behave at the party. I think this is a nice lesson for life of basically saying, it's sometimes you may want to do something, but you need an external uh, push in order to make it socially acceptable to do and to avoid the tragedy of the commons. Um, so we have these questions that I can I uh, published of if people want to throw their own parties, how to do this. Um, but it, it's a it's a nice hack, um, and that kind of goes into this idea of what what I'm currently thinking about, which is I'm going to move into an 11 person house next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> which um, is basically this idea of avoiding, you know, the status quo of life, that, that basically sometimes you need to push in order to get out of um, what's actually the easiest thing. Um, and with the 11-person house, one of our, we're trying to figure out how to do life design in a way that um, has us avoid complacency. So we're actually calling it mutually assured non-complacency, where uh, we can help each other kind of reach our goals um, just by virtue of sharing goals with other people, just by virtue of, um, you know, being within proximity. 
Um, and this is another way of having kind of social coordination around um, around an ideal life design, right? Instead of saying we're going to talk about small talk or we're, we're going to go into the conversation, the, into the party and just whatever happens, happens. Um, we're saying, actually, no, we're going to take a proactive stance on, on the future um, and at least the next couple of years on, on how we live uh, versus kind of letting whatever happens, happen. And you'd mentioned too that uh, you were doing this with the person that you're currently dating. And yeah. can you talk about one of the reasons why you chose to move into a house with 11 people instead of just the two of you? Yeah. So um, I think the, you know, the ideal um, progression as you get older is to meet somebody, um, date them for a little bit, and then move in together. And what that creates actually um, is more and more isolation um, and dependency on just the one person. So imagine that, um, you know, if, if we believe that basically um, that proximity helps determine some of our, rela our relationships and who we interact with, then as soon as you move in with somebody, um, you actually lose a lot of the other relationships in your life. Um, and that's unfortunate because one of the biggest drivers of happiness is connection with other people. Um, and what research is finding is that our society is going to ha is increasingly dependent on our spouse is the one person that we're um, that we could divulge. And I think they say like that you could confide in. Um, and in the past, it was that you could actually people had many more people that they could confide in, um, whether it be neighbors or actually a lot of it was um, neighbors. And and by moving to a by moving to having only one person, that means we're reducing the amount of connection in our life. So it's weird that we have this like ideal version of life that says, go move and isolate yourself. And you're going to kind of cut off the one thing that is a big driver of happiness, which is connection with other people. So we wanted to design a situation that, that was, that would thrive in connecting with other people um, instead of, instead of cut it off. It sounds awesome. I love, I love what you guys are trying there. A lot of people, probably Tracy and I included at times, are trying to work on multiple things, either proactively or, or they're trying to change something that they don't like. Do you advise people on the amount of change? I don't know. What do you, what do you yeah. think about change fatigue? <laughs> um, good question. So um, a few ways to answer that. One is it, within savings goals. So if you think about saving and trying to think about your financial future, it's actually found more effective to have just one goal. So people, instead of saying, I want to get a house, I want to reduce my debt, I want to have an emergency savings fund, um, it's more effective to focus on one thing um, versus having multiple goals. The other big way that I think I've seen people um, create massive change in their lives is by changing their environment. As we said, if we think about some of the drivers of um, change, your environment really contributes to a lot of your decisions. So if you move, right, this is huge. All of a sudden now you have to, you know, you're going to a different grocery store. Your, your, your gym is closer. Maybe, um, you're surrounded by new people. Um, and these are ways that you can kind of hack your habits. So right now we're doing a lot of things on autopilot. Uh, and so as soon as you change your environment, like a move, um, we all of a sudden start to have to develop new habits and that's a really nice point of intervention. And so it, it may not feel like it probably will feel if you're moving, like you're changing a lot of things. Um, but in, you know, it, it's a much easier point in life to do that. Very much more difficult if you're trying to change a lot of things and you have the same environment, the same friends, 
same people around you. You know, this is kind of why in, in AA, they really have you stop hanging out with your, your old friends because they're contributing to, you know, to your, to your behavior. If you want to change something like an addiction like this, you, you really have to change your environment in a pretty strong way. What do you guys get right, for really right. common requests? Do those also fill out your top categories or are there um, others? Yeah, I think, you know, people are working on a lot of things, but, um, the health and the finances are, are big ones. And then just general happiness, right? So how do you have more time in life? You know, how do you feel more productive? Um, you know, time, time management and productivity, um, is another big one. Yeah. I was curious to hear your opinion on, on that, because I do feel like it's so much in the public consciousness. And I wonder, I feel like sometimes feeling productive isn't actually productive. And like I see all these articles on 15 things to do to be more productive. What are some of the things that you've seen actually work well? And what's your point of view on what productivity means as it applies to happiness? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I, I think this is this is right. People people feel, I think there was a nice study that came out that says we're happier on the weekends, um, even people who are unemployed. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and it's the feeling, it's, it's kind of releasing ourselves. And they, they theorized in this study that it was um, that you feel like you should be doing more on the weekdays. And on the weekends, you don't feel as um, guilty for not doing <laughs> as much. You don't have this high bar that you're trying to achieve. And you're, everything you're doing is a bonus. So it's completely reframing work, right, by saying if you do anything on the weekend that's productive, good job, pat on the back. Versus on the weekdays, you're just not, you could never do enough in order to make yourself happy. I can um, totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a little bit of what we try to do, right? We're just, we're, we're optimists on our time. And so we try to have a pack a lot of things into a small suitcase um, and they just don't fit during the day. So, so kind of having this, this to-do list. And one way to say is you could just realize that you'll never get your to-do list done and that's okay. But what we usually think about is think about ourselves as a failure because we didn't get our to-do list done. Um, so I think being more realistic about the time that it takes to do things is helpful. And, and one way to do that is by calendaring. So um, Danny Riley kind of took this idea of basically hacking your time management through the calendar. Um, and that's because if you were to say, this is going to take me 30 minutes, this is going to take me an hour. Now you have some planning around what this thing on your to-do list actually means in a tangible way. Um, it also gives you feedback loops, right? So if, all, if you're putting stuff on the calendar for a half hour and you're learning that it's taking you longer, now the next time you have a, a better understanding how long it takes you and you can, you can plan. So I think the biggest hack for time management um, generally is, is to use the calendar, to plan your exercise times, to plan the times that you have with your significant other to plan your grocery shopping, all these things that sometimes, um, Dan has a nice thing that he says is like, if the calendar really should, the default is that it's empty right now. And in reality, it's full. <laughs> you have all these things to do. It's completely full. And yet for whatever reason, it starts empty. Um, so it makes it feel like we have all this time in the world, but in reality, we, we actually are overcommitted. Um, and so putting more things on the calendar helps us realize our commitments in a, in a way that could help get with getting stuff done. Somehow we've concluded that sitting at a desk many, many hours a week is socially normal <laughs> and that not exercising that much is pretty much socially normal and, and eating sweets is pretty much socially normal. 
Um, and I'd love to, my, I've got a few questions in this path. One is we tend to put a lot of pressure on the individual to buck these social norms that are the common path, you know? And so you've really got to be a standout individual to be the one that's saying, no, I'm actually going to do this different, like your point around moving in with 11 people. But where do these social norms come from? Because ultimately you start to scratch your head saying, what the F? Whose design is this? <laughs> How do we all end up with this common set of social beliefs that are so debilitating for so many people? You know, if you make it to 65 anymore without a significant chronic health disease based on lifestyle that a lot of people have blamed the individuals for, I'm looking at it as more of a social societal norm that these people just kind of went with the normal flow. And this is what happened. So I'm curious to get your point of view on social norms in there. So you're, you're right on. Um, so there, the, the current stat, I think it was in 2008, uh, study that, that basically showed that 40% of the um, reasons why we die um, in America, I, I think it is a study focused in America, were uh, human-caused, human-related right. or right. caused by our, our decision-making. So things... Um, you know, smoking-related deaths, drinking-related deaths, um, lung cancer from the smoking, um, so obesity, diabetes, all these things are things that are, we could decide not uh, not to do. We would increase our, our lifespan, and, and 100 years ago, it was just 10%. So you're correct. The world is getting much more difficult to live in a way that um, is helps us be happier and healthier um, and well-off. But, but a lot of it is just that it's much, much easier to go with the flow, right, and, mm -hmm. and take the mm -hmm. donut and um, spend time on Facebook and not exercise. Um, and so there's a few, you know, we could say that it's just category, it's a social norm and social norms are really difficult to change, which is true. But I would say an easier and more uplifting way to look at it is we should really make it much easier to do the things that are good for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you had um, more treadmills in offices, would, would this, A, increase the social norm, but make it easier for people to, to work out during the day? Um, you know, a lot of gyms, we visited gyms and companies, and they don't even have um, towels for people to take. What is, that, that means you actually have to remember to bring your towel from home. You're going to then have to take a wet towel back and dry it. Like, like the idea of, of somebody doing this on a regular basis is just so far-fetched. So how we design our environment, if we just can generally make it easier for people to do the stuff that's good for them, we're, we'll get to a be much better starting point than, than we have now. Yeah, um, I think it, it gets back to your point around the, the responsibility and the privilege of those that have roles that are in experience architecture, you know, whether it's a product or or a service or a thing. Um, but it, it seems to me that, that those in those roles aren't doing a very good job of holding up their end of the deal. Yeah, I would um, even say that most people who are in those roles don't understand the impact and there's a right. lot of unintended consequences that come from it. Like right. I think about the food industry and the food deserts. It's like that happens because food companies are you know, trying to get more people to eat their products. And so they're marketing to the individuals who they want. And suddenly you've, 
you've got an entire generation of people who've lost the skill of cooking for themselves and and they rely on these quick fixes and then next thing you know there's no need for a grocery store because a burger king would make more money there so a you're right one that the people who are um, designing our system we aren't aren't doing a great job and and that's not necessarily their fault it's our incentives are not um, helping uh, incentivize people to look out to help consumers look out for their long-term future selves right so so it's not that the individuals in these companies or the leaders of some of these companies actually just don't care about people it's that our our incentive system is not has not caught up to um to giving to having consumers basically, you know, build products that help them in the long run versus increase active use in the short. And there are things that product teams can do to change that, to change their incentive system. So, for instance, if you go to a product team, you usually every Monday morning will look at some stats. That means it doesn't have to be Monday, but on a regular basis, you look at stats about your users. Um, and most teams are looking at active use, time spent in product, time returning to product, and then time spent in product. Um, and, and what we really should be measuring, which, which, what is that, that results in basically product teams that are designing for success. Success looks like getting you to spend more time in their product and getting you to come back. That means everyone's bullets are going to be firing to get that to happen. A better metric would be measuring the behavior that you want to change. It doesn't matter if they come back to your product or not, right? It doesn't matter how much time they spend in it. It matters basically if your vision is to get people to be happier, healthier, wealthier, or any of these good reasons that companies usually start. Um, if we want to be, there's revenue generating as well, but we want to measure the behavior that actually people want versus the how. And I think we're getting too, you know, we're we're creating an incentive system um, that each company could change, right? So I, I think there's some massive social coordination efforts that need to be changed, but there's also high opportunity within companies to change the incentive system. Yeah, yeah, that makes me think about working with food and beverage companies that talk about share of stomach and share of throat. And those terms always just really threw me off. And just thinking that everyone's competing for this layer of my stomach, because that means that another product can't be there. It's, it's fascinating. And so I'm, I'm curious if, uh, what are you most excited about that you guys are working on that just has you seeing some amazing deployment of this theory and a new, a new paradigm for people to think? We're going into uh, cafeterias, fitness centers, and clinics uh, with Aetna and um, helping them design a checklist that employers can use in order to uh, make small changes in their design of their workplaces uh, such that people will, um, you know, eat a little bit healthier, get the flu shots, um, go to the gym when they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is very uplifting that employers are realizing that we're spending a lot of time in the workplace. You know, most of our day is spent in the workplace and taking some responsibility for ensuring that the workplace is conducive to people's long-term health goals. So things around moving, how would you, you know, put the, where would you put the salad bar? Where do you put the trays? How big are your plates in order to kind of increase the likelihood that we'll uh, eat a little bit less each day? I'm, I'm uplifted about this. Yeah, that's great. The uh, creative mind behind the CDC campaign for anti-smoking where they're showing, 
people in their hospital beds saying, you know, I used to smoke and now I'm living with this disease. They're pretty, they're pretty raw. Uh, but he mentioned the insight that they came across that I thought was helpful is that most people feel like they would, they would be fine dying early knowing they had a good time. Right. You know, like I, I smoked, I had a good time. I know I'm going to go early. But what did make them uncomfortable was the knowing that I might actually live with the disease that's really uncomfortable and shitty for 20 years. Yeah, exactly. So that was kind of the insight behind that campaign, which I thought was was interesting. And And yeah, to do a program where you put people and have them hang out with old people for for a couple days. And basically, what you what you realize is that there are some old older folks. I was at an art. I was at a place where there was one 80 year old playing volleyball, right, and he's just really good. And then there's some that actually, right, can't walk and, and they're 60 and they, they have struggled to do basic things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is extremely empowering kind of thing to see where, where you understand that there are consequences to decisions you make earlier in your life. Um, you know, there's nice future self-research where you look at yourself as an old person and all of a sudden you start making decisions that are in line with how you would behave. So you save more money, you, eat, you choose to eat better if, you're, if you see this future self. Yeah, I love the idea of being able to build empathy for your future self in a really relevant way because I feel like we're so disconnected from that that person. We can't we can't really theorize them. Let's get to the core of it all and talk about procrastination for a little <laughs> while. Uh, <laughs> as I I think uh, many many people have something that they'd love to do that they just don't want to get around to. You get a, gave a great example. Um, about your own, the LASIK surgery. I'm curious, can you unpack procrastination for us and maybe share some insights around it that people might not normally think of? Um, sure. So um, one of a nice, Danny really did a nice study um, with his students that is, kind of explains one way we can overcome procrastination, but how we're all afflicted by it. Um, he basically had one group, you're a student, you have a, a essay to write. In fact, you have multiple essays to write in the semester. And he gave them the choice of either um, setting their own deadlines or he would set the deadline for them. You say basically one in one world, you could say that your deadlines are you could turn it in at any point. You have three papers to write. You could turn them all in at the very end or you could spread it out through the semester. Obviously, if you turn them all in the very end, this is this is probably the smartest rational thing to do because you then you don't really you can't predict your time. You don't know exactly um, when you're going to be free, when you're going to be busy. And so why would you pre-commit yourself to turning them in early? However, we also know that it's very, if you would leave all of them to the end, what would happen? You probably would procrastinate all of them and they may be lower quality. Um, and so what he let people pick their own deadlines or he gave them their actual deadlines. And what he found was that when he gave them deadlines, people got higher grades. Wow. And so, so I think some of, some of this is basically realizing in procrastination that many times it makes sense in our head to put things off because there is good reason to not do it right now. Um, and yet it's, a very, uh, it's very easy to do and may not be the best. So having an external deadline you know, was shown to basically help people follow through on commitments in a way that the people didn't. You know, you imagine they should have been able to predict their schedules. And it's not like Dan knew their schedules any better than than they did. 
so I think we should realize that everyone has procrastination and and it's and by relying on our willpower to overcome it is very difficult. Even the kids in the Walter Michelle Marshmallow study, it wasn't that they were extraordinary in their willpower and they avoided depletion. They did tactics that if you look at the videos, um, the things that they did were like sit on their hands. They're actually employing tactics that help them resist eating the marshmallow. Yeah, and that that explains a lot around why the accountability is working. And that, that it seems like that's where tools like Facebook can be very helpful to to publicly announce a goal or to create that extrinsic social pressure to force the the uh, you know the Dan style deadline yeah. extrinsically. So so what are, are you guys working on any are you procrastinating on anything that we could <laughs> that we could use right now then you would announce to people and we would check in with you uh nice social pressure <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a book right now and I keep procrastinating how, how would you apply uh, a deadline Chris is there a way you could help her <laughs> with, sure. with with a deadline well I think I'll think very break any common myths here but I I think that yeah, with something as as massive as a book, it's a huge undertaking. So how do we break it down into a smaller part? And I would say, hey, Tracy, will you share 10 pages that you wrote with me in a week? Yeah. Now we're talking. <laughs> I can do that because I already have 10 pages to share. <laughs> I know. It's totally Sneaky cheating. Sneaky trickster. Yeah. So, and... And you know, one thing is to really, you know, having the having the goal and the accountability is nice. But are there barriers that are preventing you from from writing those ten pages? And maybe, and uh, you know, if you think about rewarding yourself for progress versus outcomes, is it something where you can just say, "This week, I'm going to get my space set up so that I have a space to write in." Next week, I'm going to write the title and the outline. You know, and then I'm going to, and then the following week I'm going to do the 10 pages. So what are the barriers that would be preventing progress? And can you reward yourself for the the process versus an outcome? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I feel like um, what the barriers are all mental, which I'm more than aware of and have been and should know better. Right. But once I start writing, it's fine. It's just the getting to do it because I'm afraid that nothing will come, even though I have 20 years of professional writing experience telling me that that has never happened. So that's interesting too. Cause you, cause then it's, could you write about something that doesn't matter? So you can trust, like, how would you, cause right now I think sometimes what, what we end up doing is, is thinking that we have to choose one thing and if we get it wrong, then everything's, uh, you know, then, then there's no other option. So some dating advice instead of just trying to find your soulmate you go out with like five people who you know are wildly different from you and you take the pressure off of trying to find this one true soulmate yeah because uh, when you're then trying to find the one true soulmate you may not be your most relaxed self you text too early versus <laughs> when you're going out with five people you understand that like there's a lot of fish in the sea abundance is um, a wonderful thing I love that. Another thing that I've done that's, that has been surprising and worked well is I notice that when I type something, I'm in the 
I'm in the mode of writer and I want it to be well-crafted. Um, but it was keeping the thoughts I had in my head from getting onto the page as quickly. So I started dictating uh, and interviewing my characters and dictating it on my computer so that I could capture our conversation, which makes me sound really nice. crazy. But it did a great job of that. And then that wasn't necessarily the writing, but I had the information that I needed then to move to the writing step. Very nice. So you're removing barriers even there. Yeah. Oh, I feel like yeah. I should pay you money for this. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, mine's like Tracy's where I have to get into, a, we talked, Tracy and I had a great chat about this right after the new year is you could do lots of things and would accomplish so much more if I didn't have the requirement of needing to be in a certain state to do those things. Right. So if I'm going to sit down and write, write out a presentation that I think is going to just be like a white paper of something really revolutionary. Then I need to exercise first, have a cup of coffee, like get in this perfect mindset to settle down to the mode where I can actually do that. Instead of just knowing that it's not always going to be the perfect scenario, just sit down and start doing some of it. Yeah. I wonder if, um, if you could do a focus on what's going well. So list a couple of things around the optimized state that went well during the day so that you remember to optimize those versus focusing on what, what the things went bad. Cause we tend to basically have a kind of a negative orientation on things that aren't going well and forgetting the fact that actually you may be, you know, 80% to your optimized state and that's probably, right. you know, a hundred percent better than most people are doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The role of confidence in all this is key. And I'd be curious what the behavioral economic world thinks about confidence momentum. So just achieving really small things and then having that build up to the new things. And we're doing a test on this. We're going to give people um, questions and then have, make sure that the answers that they get are yes and a hundred percent and try to build up their confidence with these kind of fake questions and then see if we can get them to allocate more to their savings if they're more confident huh. about their financial situation. That's great. That's great. They're like, wait a second. You fooled me. <laughs> yeah, you fooled me. Why is my savings account going up? That's great. Uh, That's great. Okay, so, so I do have to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Totally. Thanks so much for your time and yeah. your wisdom. <laughs> of course, of course. And good um, luck in the house. We can't wait to hear the story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, very nice talking to you. And I'll, I'll send the pictures of our, our group living situation. We don't have a name yet, so that's that's the only problem. Oh, you need a name. It'll, it'll, I think we'll have to get inspired by, by something. So we're not acting like a pregnant woman who names her kid beforehand. We're going to birth the child. And uh, name so. I love it. Cool. Sounds good. All right. All thanks right. for your time. Okay. Talk, Talk to you soon. Bye. Talk with me.